0: This is an IPA Studio Production. Title 35 of the United States Code Section 103 mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Ordinary Howdy, I'm your host Preston Morgan and you're listening to Skilled in the Art. Ordinary skilled. skilled in the Art is brought to you by Intellectual Property Aggies, a student group at Texas A&M University School of Law filled with students aspiring to be IP attorneys. This episode is part of our Business casual series. We sit down with IP professors and practitioners and hear their stories, the path they took to get where they are, and what advice they have for us. On today's episode, we have Professor Sarab Vishnabhat, or as the students call him, Professor V. Currently, he teaches patents, remedies, and civil procedure here at Texas A&M. His path to becoming a professor is an interesting one. And we start off with his work at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. I started there in
1: 2010 in the fall, and in the spring of that year, the agency had just established for the first time in its history an office of uh, chief economist. And so I was hired by the first chief economist to be a legal advisor uh, in his shop. He was staffing up with academic econometricians, uh, statisticians, people who could sort of do the economic work. And what he wanted was one person to sort of have, uh, you know, a legal perspective on all the data that they were. And honestly, he probably didn't need that position to exist because he himself had a law degree, and the agency is full of lawyers. But uh, he saw something that I could contribute, and gave me a chance to contribute it. So it was good luck for me.
0: Yeah, and you, and you did. So, would you so like? What would you do there? Yeah. Right. Uh,
1: yeah, so the, the position actually started as an unpaid internship. It was funny. I was, I was supposed to work for you know, 15, 20 hours a week, and the requirements for the job, the formal requirements, were you had to be 18 years old and a U.S. citizen and, you know, enrolled in an academic program somewhere yeah. in America. Check and check. So, yeah, exactly. So I, I sort of fulfilled all those formalities. But at the end, but what he needed from me at the end of the day was to review the written materials that would come out of the office, the reports, the, the academic papers, the policy papers. And he just wanted a lawyer's perspective uh, on those things. So that's what I did. And then he also said that uh, since it's an unpaid position, you, know, you have a lot of latitude to, to publish. He knew uh, what uh, my academic ambitions were and was very supportive of it. And okay. so he said, yeah, if you want to, I'll give you an office in a Westlaw account. And if you want to do research that l- ends up leading to work of your own, that's going to get published, wow. then, you know, that's fine. But uh, the agency's work has to come first. That's the only condition.
0: Wow. So you had a lot of, uh, had a lot of leeway with kind of what you could do over there.
1: Yeah. I mean, when, <laughs> when you're not getting paid, <laughs> they, can, they can give you a lot of flexibility on yeah. other things.
0: So how long did you stay there?
1: Uh, I stayed there for a total of about four and a half, five years. Uh, fortunately, at, uh, fairly quickly into it, about seven, eight months in, uh, I did start getting paid. Okay, that was my next
0: question, uh, four yeah. or five uh, years. From that yeah, the,
1: the chief economist, uh, Stu Graham is his name. He's back at Georgia Tech on their, their business school faculty now. He and the agency's director, David Kapos, mm-hmm. um, uh Basically, did me the the biggest favor anybody's done professionally, certainly, uh, and and invested a full time position, created it, and said, "I'm the guy for it." Wow!
0: Wow! Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so you went straight to the USPTO. Is that uh, kind of you, did you know you wanted to do that? You patents uh, whenever you were in law school.
1: I knew I wanted to be a patent lawyer, and uh, the the school I went to, Franklin Pierce. Uh, which is now the University of New Hampshire, uh, had a very well-respected program and still does for intellectual property. And so I knew I wanted to do that because of my science background, but uh, I had no idea that I would go to work for the agency. Uh, some of my friends from law school went there as patent examiners because mm-hmm. uh, they had that that option to them. But I thought I would get a, a job at a law firm, you know, litigating, something related to patents. But I thought I'd work in private practice before I became an academic, I had no inkling that agency practice was in my future or that there might be something fun in it for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, uh, must've been a fun surprise.
1: (laughs) It was, I mean, when you, you're completely out of options, then, uh, things get interesting.
0: That's fun. Um, so, so you said that you did know that you want to go back into academics or you wanted to go into academics. So, uh, it, is that something that you knew even before you went to law school, or is that something that you? How, how, how do you? How you decide that you want to go into academics?
1: Yeah, so yeah. I wanted to be a teacher since I was a little kid. Really, literally two years old. I'd visit my uh, my great aunts and uncles in rural India, right? And uh, I came from a very nice. Uh, uh school mm-hmm. and so i'd learned my abcs and i knew you know words and shapes and colors and stuff and so i'd go to these rural communities and the kids in the neighborhood uh who had not had this education i was like okay well like clearly kids need to learn this so let me be your teacher and so i'd stand up at the front and pretend i was their teacher and like <laughs> walk them through the, the alphabet and my parents still tell stories about how preposterous i looked and <laughs> i'm sure they're right but so I knew I wanted to be a teacher ever since I was a little kid. Uh, the day I knew I wanted to be a law professor mm-hmm. was my first day of law school. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I stepped in and it was civil procedure. And my, my teacher, who's now the actually the interim dean of my law school, um, and I saw him just this week, uh, Is I mean, he had such a commanding presence. And he was a teacher in all the ways that I loved uh, about teaching. Right. And I said, "Okay, well, you know, if if law's my field and teaching's my passion, then clearly I, I need to become a teacher of law."
0: Wow. Yeah. So uh, so is that kind of is this style the style that you emulate yourself kind of?
1: Yeah, I mean, I try to uh, where possible. I think the style of teaching, the voice that you have as a teacher is something that uh, is certainly influenced by people mm-hmm. that you've you've seen as your own teachers, but it's not something you can just copy. You know, emulate's a good word for it because there's sort of a limit to how much you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it's a good aid in finding out what your voice really is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if there if there's an influence, then he's he's certainly at the top of that list.
0: Yeah. Wow. So uh, so so, what do you do to uh, you know you make the decision that. You, you want to become a professor one day you know what what do you do to prepare for that
1: well so for me one of the difficulties was not only was I ignorant about the process of becoming a law professor but I was unaware of the extent of my ignorance <laughs> so I mean, that's like blinder than blind in, in some sense so what I did was just ask a number of my professors including uh, Dean Dean bud Jordan Bud uh, uh, from from Supro, basically, what do you do? You know, I asked him, mm-hmm. uh, are there credentials I need? Is there experience I need before I'm allowed to become a professor? Uh, what are the formal requirements? And just as importantly, what are the informal requirements? Right. And the thing to do is just ask a bunch of people because they'll they'll tell you, you know, hopefully, honestly, what all the requirements are. And then the things that they choose to focus on uh, you know, if you hear a number of people focusing on the same thing, that's a good signal mm-hmm. uh, that that that's, should be something you prioritize in your career path going forward. And law school is a great place to start because that's where yeah. the foundations are really laid right. um, for things that you're not going to be able to change later on, but will still be a very important part of, of the decision that other people make to to hire
0: you. One of the things that is so awesome about you right is uh is that you do you, you do a lot you have like how, how many different papers are you working on right now uh
1: at full count eight
0: so, you, you, so you're working
1: <laughs> i'm not doing an equal amount of work on all of them obviously they're in various stages
0: but yeah okay so so you're, that's a lot more than i thought <laughs> you're, you're, so you're working on eight papers you know you have uh you're in charge of the journal. You you're in charge of the what's the blog that you're you're doing? Uh, it's the, oh with Professor
1: Holland, yeah, that hasn't gotten off the ground. No yet, no, no, no no
0: no the uh, the the one about the IP uh, symposium, so, uh, the the IP conference that they go on.
1: Oh oh yeah, the IP and IT conferences calendar, right? That I maintain. Yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of for the IP community yeah. uh, as a whole.
0: So, but moral of the story is, is that you, you do a lot of things. Okay, you do a lot yes. of different things. You do them all at the same time. You know, so uh, how do you, how do you do that? Because because I, I think that you know, as, as a law student, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard to balance all the different things that you have going on. On top of that, you know, you have to network and meet people, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, how how do you balance all these things? So it's tough,
1: but the way that I do it is for example, with the papers, right? I'm working on eight papers right now, but I'm not working on all eight of them at once. I. It's like being a lawyer in a private you know, practice setting. You dock it. You set deadlines, you stick to them. And if you fail to meet your deadlines, bad things happen, and hopefully you learn and things get better. So uh, for me, I think sort of seasonally when it comes to to research because Mm -hmm. there are two big cycles, as you know, for when you have to submit papers to law reviews. There's the February and there's the August. And if you spend your summer working on something, it should be ready to submit by August. Right. Uh, If you spend the summer working on something that you're preparing for February, then what you're going to do is have a paper written up by August that you will then spend the fall workshopping, either at your own faculty colloquium or in front of other law faculties. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing is good to keep on a, a medium-term time horizon. As far as teaching, that's got to be handled week to week and to some extent class to class. Yeah. A course like patent law, which you took uh, mm-hmm. with me last year, I've taught a few times now, and it's my primary area of, of uh, expertise and research. So... I feel a little bit more comfortable class over class knowing what I'm going to talk about, and I can think about it in, in terms of, okay, here's this unit. What am I going to talk about? How am I going to divide up the material? If it's something I'm teaching for the first time, like I taught Remedies, which you were also in, mm-hmm. uh, my, the, teaching, the, teaching that course last spring was the first time I taught it. I took it in school, liked it a lot, and I had some sense of how I wanted to approach it. But actually prepping a new course as tough as Remedies uh, for the first time mm-hmm. requires you to just drill down to a level of detail that's tough to imagine for a student, and you guys have your own difficulties with that material. right? right? So um, you sort of have to know the extent of your ignorance. <laughs> I'll bring, bring back that point. And the way to do that is talk to people who've done it before. Yeah. So Dean Harrington taught Remedies uh, very well and sort of fairly consistently, before I took it over from her, so she was very generous with her notes and her advice on how to approach it, and you know what what uh, level of practical engagement, problem sets, that sort of thing versus case material, class discussion,
0: and uh, and doctrine. You, you plan a lot. You mm-hmm. the, the deadlines. You said your own deadlines for yourself. Yeah. Is this something that you always did, or is this something that no. you kind of had to do, like? Yeah, no, it, it, it
1: doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a very, uh, by nature, a very lazy person. Um, it's true. I if uh, I think if you sat uh, me and my sister down in a room and asked 10 of our friends and family which of the two of us is the harder working one, 10 of them would point to her and one of them would kind of look at me with pity, like, sorry, dude, I'm not allowed to lie. (laughs) You know? So yeah, she's, and I mean, she's also very bright, but she's more hardworking than I ever have been. I, to the extent that I had any natural abilities, had a tendency to, to coast on them whenever it was possible. And my parents really had to instill discipline where none existed before. And when I got to college, um, I went to an engineering school. Georgia Tech's right. not an easy school. To, yeah. It's an easy school to get into. Okay. It's not an easy school to get out of. <laughs> and um, so I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes about mm-hmm. what happens when when you let that laziness you know, take over and, and you coast. And then when I got to law school, it was just this whole other level of now your future's really on the line here. You better – because you're not going to get another chance to cultivate these skills. Once right. you're in practice – you got to do what you're expected to do, or you're not going to have a job for very long. And for somebody who didn't have a job lined up and had really scraped to get that first opportunity, um, it was just too valuable to me not to to do it as well as I could, and that included changing
0: my habits dramatically. While Professor V has a great deal going on in his work life, he makes it look easy. Now he lets us in on a secret.
1: I'll I'll tell you honestly, I love my job. I mean, to an irrational extent. I love my job, and I derive personal satisfaction from being a teacher right. uh, in this setting in a way that most people don't feel about their jobs. <laughs> so that's a big part of it. Yeah. You know, if I can go for days and weeks sometimes without uh, doing much that we would consider the normal type of fun, like going out to a bar, going out to a restaurant, mm-hmm. going on a date with my wife, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and it's an important part of work-life balance, which where all of all of us on the faculty want to to cultivate in uh, in our students Mm -hmm. but work-life balance doesn't mean every day is going to be balanced right over a fairly immediate but not daily time frame you will get all of the fun and all of the hard work and all of the productivity that you're supposed to get yeah so there will be stretches where you just have to to work through it yeah and it's going to require a little bit less sleep than you're used to, mm-hmm. and it's going to require a little more, you know, vigilance and just fortitude <laughs> uh, than, than we've often been called on to have before. But at the end of that, take a day or two and really just unplug from yeah. work, shut off your phone, go out and, you know, take a walk or something yeah. with, a, with a loved one. That's, that's work-life balance. Right. So... For me, it's the same sort of thing. I travel a lot, my wife's a, a consultant, she travels a lot. And what do we do? At the end of all of our travels, we have a lot of airline and hotel points. And we wouldn't do all this if we didn't enjoy travel. So what we do to unwind is travel some more, but together <laughs> right. and to a place that we both like. Usually yeah. it's to visit family or you know, country we've never been to. Yeah. And yeah.
0: Y'all, uh, have y'all gone on any trips lately?
1: We have, yeah. So, our, our anniversary was just a, a month and a half ago, and we oh, went gosh, to gosh. the Olympic Peninsula uh, in, in Western Washington oh, okay. and just drove around, went to Snoqualmie National Forest, hiked a bit. Yeah. Um, I am not outdoorsy. <laughs> she's, I believe nature is to be protected from, uh, but, but she's. F- from you? <laughs> no, no, no. Nature is to be protected from, like I need to be protected from nature. <laughs> so I take a very respectful view of nature and sort of try to keep away from it. Okay, okay. Um, but, you know, I did it because that's what you do on an anniversary. Right. You try to say yes. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of that trip, you know, my, my wife, Monica, she turned to me and said, thank you, honey. I promise next year we'll go to a museum.
0: <laughs> so there you have it. So, uh, so so, that's your ideal ideal fun is, is museum?
1: No, that's what she thinks my ideal right. fun is. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do like museums. My ideal place to just unwind, mm-hmm. if I just had my druthers, uh, a really large library or bookstore. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a great quote, and it's probably apocryphal for all I know, but uh, the writer, the Argentine writer, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, was once quoted as saying, I've always imagined paradise will be a kind of a library. And
0: I couldn't agree more. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Books aren't his only passion, though. If you happen to be in one of his classes, there's a good chance you'll hear a reference or two to one of his favorite TV shows, like The Simpsons.
1: Television is just what sticks in your mind more. You know, I, We're very visual creatures. Um, I watched a lot of TV growing up, yeah. and I have one of the sort of secrets to my success, I guess, uh, despite coming a little bit late to the the habits of hard work and, and diligence, uh, is that I have a really, really good memory yeah. for details. And so I'll watch a movie once, and the memorable quotes will just stick out mm-hmm. in my head. And so I can quote it fairly well. And so the the stuff that I watched growing up, The Simpsons. You know, later on in college, it was Family Guy and Futurama. Um, I discovered The West Wing. Uh, certainly all the 80s sitcoms, I mean, not even the good ones, right? Like Mr. <laughs> Belvedere was great. It's probably a little well-known now, a uh, little less well-known now. But uh, yeah, the TGIF line, like I remember all that dialogue and it sort of used to worry me, what should be in my head that this is taking the space of, right? And I just gave up worrying about it.
0: <laughs> but it's all in there somewhere. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Until then, Here's a message from Career Services.
1: Howdy. At the Office of Career Services, we strive to provide tailored advice for each individual career path. Did you know that we have a checklist specifically designed with you in mind? Stop by our office and make an appointment. You can meet with one of our career counselors, and I guarantee you will leave with a more structured career plan for your job search. And if not, at least a hot cup of coffee.
0: Well, Professor V does teach a number of different classes, today he's going to talk about his remedies class and why you should take it. So, Remedies is a course about all the
1: things that you can ask a legal authority to give you. Okay, it's in simplest terms. Uh, you can ask the court to force somebody to give you money. You can ask the court to make somebody do something or make somebody stop doing something. Mm-hmm. And the way in which we decide which things you're entitled to, how much of that thing you're entitled to, and what arguments the other side may have, that's where we get into particular doctrines about substitutionary versus specific relief, uh, measures of the harm, are you trying to vindicate you know, an ex- expectation interest versus a reliance interest, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, um, the distinction between law and equity. So these are all things that are formal terms in the law and their doctrines and, and that sort of thing, but ultimately they can be boiled down into very plain English, just what do you want? And yeah. how are you going to get it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a very practical course, and uh, it's uh, it's tested on the bar. So you know a lot of <laughs> students who know that are probably uh, taking it for that reason. But even if it weren't tested on the bar, I think it's a course that every student should yeah. take before graduating.
0: Is it is it a class that you need to have taken? You know, other classes to to be able to understand what's going on in the class.
1: I don't think so. I think if you there's a, there's a reasonable debate about this mm-hmm. among uh, scholars and teachers of remedies, and there are good positions on both sides. Uh, it used to be offered here uh, at Texas A&M as a capstone course, mm-hmm. and so you could only take it in the third year after you had taken sufficiently many other credit hours right. uh, because it tied together all these different areas of the law uh, and different subjects very well, and you sort of rethought them as uh, you took remedies. Now, the same thing, the same qualities that make Remedies a good capstone course also makes it a good entry point into yeah. all those upper-level courses. Yeah. And so starting last year, uh, second-year students could mm-hmm. take it as well. All you had to do is uh, you know, fulfill the, the early, the first-year requirements. So I don't think it's a course that requires you to have taken a bunch of other stuff. If you have taken a bunch of other courses and want to synthesize them into something practical Remedies is a good way to do that yeah. but if you want to take remedies as an entry point into all those other courses mm-hmm. it's just about just as valid a way to do it and it's uh, in fact what i did as a second year law yeah. student myself
0: yeah. yeah i did this i did the same thing yeah. uh i liked it i thought you know it really helped me to uh you know going going forward to think about future classes just yeah. a different way and uh so I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you teach the course? Is it, uh, is it just case after case after case, or, or is it more of like cases with questions, or how do you, how do, you do it?
1: Yeah, so the, the casebook that I use is by uh, Professor Doug Laycock at the University of Virginia, and he's a very well-respected scholar of remedies, and his casebook Is sort of the go-to case, but there are others on the market. But his has, uh, in my view, some of the most teacher-friendly and student-friendly construction of how the cases are edited, what types of problems and notes are included after each each case and each unit. So what I do is mainly a case-driven approach. Uh, There are notes and problems built into the readings. It's about 25, 30 pages worth of reading per class, as you probably remember. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the problems in class. And the first time through, I gave a lot of thought to this, and I wanted to see sort of as a baseline, uh, you know, taking a Socratic method approach to discussing the cases and what principle we can derive from it um, was my primary approach. And I'm probably going to keep that going forward. But... The use of problems at the midterm and at the the sort of midterm uh, chronologically of the semester and then close to the final exam Mm -hmm. uh, did prove to be pretty helpful. uh, And a number of students told me that. So uh, the next time I teach it, I probably will add more problems as we go. In the style of a bar question, you know, mm-hmm. paragraph-long hypo, multiple-choice question, yeah. and approaches to, to parsing it and figuring out right. the approach.
0: So, do these questions do they go toward uh, your final grade, or, is it you, or do you still just have the final exam, and that's it's all on that?
1: Yeah, no, these these exercises, all these things mm-hmm. are um, are not for grades. Okay. So they're entirely for the students' benefit, mm-hmm. and you know, in the in the language of of pedagogy, which. I've learned a lot about from, from Professor McGrath, uh, who studies this stuff formally.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: it's the difference between a summative assessment that sort of sums up and figures out what you have learned, mm-hmm. with a formative assessment, which is an assessment intended to be part of the lesson. So you're testing what, you are, what the student has learned, but the test itself is a type of lesson. Mm-hmm. And so by constantly asking, how well do I understand this? How well can I apply it? That itself aids in the learning process. So that's what these problems are intended to be. The majority of the grade is the final, and I do reserve a, uh, a portion of it for class participation. Yeah. I think that's an important uh, element of the learning process in the classroom. And mm-hmm. a student who does uh, particularly well in class participation, I can bump their grade up as much as a grade increment. So it might take you from uh, a B plus to an A minus or right. something
0: like that. Right. Uh, so you've so talked a little bit, you know, about how, how you teach, you know, what you do on your end. You know, mm-hmm. what, do, what can students do on their end to, uh, to make them better prepared for your class? The
1: important thing, and it's, it's, hard, it's a hard habit to cultivate, you have to struggle a little bit with yeah. the material. Let yourself struggle with the material. You know, I can tell you, read the cases, mm-hmm. okay? And, and you should read the cases. Right. But it's not enough to read mm-hmm. them once, mm-hmm. always. And it's not always enough to read them slowly, although that, that can certainly help. What you have to do is ask yourself, is this case consistent with everything else I've learned? Yeah. And that's a really, you're trying to do two or three different things at once with your brain right. when you think in those terms, right? And you're gonna to have to do it as lawyers. You don't always have a ready summary of the case available to you that somebody else has prepared. Right. Um, And so you just need to go straight to the primary source and figure out, A, what did the court actually say? How did the law change or did it change? Mm -hmm. B, is the change that we see consistent with what else we know about the law? Is this going to open up unintended consequences? Right. And that's a fundamentally creative exercise. I'm asking you to foresee what is potentially unforeseeable. Yeah. Right. and come up with ideas. And some of those ideas are going to prove to be correct. And a lot of those ideas are probably going to turn out to be pretty silly in retrospect. Mm -hmm. But it's an important part of engaging with course material that that you do that. Because law professors do that. Practicing lawyers do that. Judges do that. Mm -hmm. Everybody who takes the legal enterprise seriously has to do that. And that's what you're learning. You have to really ask yourself, uh, what is it that I'm consuming as I read this, this information. It's not just a rule. It's a way of thinking about the law
0: that you're, you're honing as you go through it. Yeah. There's a lot of good reasons to take remedies. And Professor V explains that there's no reason not to.
1: Now that I'm going to introduce more problem-based uh, learning in the course, I think students will probably find it a little bit more accessible, mm-hmm. because they won't come after you've been through the whole set of material. Um, now, that also pushes uh, a lot of new burdens onto the student, uh, and that's by design. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to take the time to, to create these problems for your benefit, then, then you have to take the time to actually do the problems, right? If I tell you what the problem was and then just walk you through the answer, great, I've learned the material for the third or fourth time, and I'm, I'm much better off, but you're no better right. <laughs> than, than you were before. So actually taking the time to, to work through them. Work ethic... Is never not going to be important to the study of law, yeah. uh, so setting aside time, managing your time effectively um, means that there's no good reason left not to take remedies mm-hmm. you know it's it's a course with tremendous practical value, and as an added bonus, yeah, it's on the bar, yeah. so you'll have that going for you <laughs> but um. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the only thing your clients care about. Are you going to get what I want for me? Yeah. You are the one who cares about. Oh, this you know violates the rule against perpetuities. That's a secret handshake between two lawyers. The client wants to know: Did I get the money I asked for? Yeah. Did you get the uh, the injunction that mm-hmm. says they have to stop trespassing on my land? If not, the reason why doesn't really concern them. Concerns you, but you got to think about your client. That's where. Your
0: obligations lie, and that's where your paycheck's coming from. Before he goes, Professor V gives the students one last tip on how to stand out to future employers. So joining a journal, either the Law Review or the Property Journal, Mm -hmm.
1: is a phenomenal credential. It's a strong signal to send to employers that you are a diligent thinker, somebody who has a lot of attention to detail, works well in teams. Yeah and takes ideas about the law seriously. And it's not easy to find any single activity that communicates all of those things at once mm-hmm. as effectively as serving on the law review or, or the property journal does. Now, full disclosure, I'm the advisor of the property journal, <laughs> but uh, I'm not out here you know shilling for the journal because I'm the advisor. One of the reasons I chose to be the advisor uh, mm-hmm. when I was invited was because uh, this is such an important part of the intellectual development of uh, leaders in the legal profession. If you go talk to people who clerk, people who go on to j- become judges, yeah. uh, you know, partners at law firms, mm-hmm. most of the the leaders of the legal profession were leaders in law school. And one of the ways to be a leader uh, in the intellectual community is to yeah. serve on a journal.
0: Yeah.
1: So, uh, I certainly encourage all the students to keep their grades up and you know, try to, to grade on if they can. But if you, if you don't, you still have the opportunity to write on. Uh, and, and that's another way to, to be part of that
0: same same community. That's it for this week's episode of Skilled in the Art. A very special thank you to Professor Vishnabhat for being on the show today. Thanks go out to IT, the Law School, Braxton Bragg, Jonathan Minasana, Stuart Campbell, Alex Collins, and Vince Vela. Intro is a mashup of Supreme Court audio from OEA.org and music from Pease on SoundCloud. Saxophone is by our very own Matt Pellegrino. Send questions and comments to ipapodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with Professor Vishnabot for our Business Formal series. This has been an IPA Studio production. I'm your host, Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.